encouraging one as well, and there's been much to, to glean and to learn from. There always is, no matter where we open up our Bible, but especially as we do take the time to study verse by verse and to see what, what God has given. Certainly, this letter was not written directly to us. This was penned by John to go to some specific individuals and, and to the at specific church of that day. But yet, in the very same sense, God has written it for you and I today as well. We must never forget that. So I want to read here for us um, verse 13 down through 21 just to show us this section once more. We've been talking about to know some things, and now we're getting in the, the things that we must show. Everything works from the inside out, or at least it must. Religion works, and world, worldly religions or false religions or the Gnosticism of John's day works often from the outside in. It's to make the outward um, fit what we think the inward should look like, but rather what we do need and what must be done to be godly, to be biblical, is that it must be from the inside out. So we must know some things before we can show some things. And so uh, this is what we're getting at today, and this will be uh, ending off here. Verse 13 tells us, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And here's our portion for today. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. There's a lot here, a lot that John is dealing with that he has also talked about earlier on in this uh, in this letter, and so we're going to go back over a few of those things, but let's first of all look at verse number 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Remember that the idea of perfection here is that of completeness, one of maturity. We would love to say that we love our spouses and our family and our friends perfectly, right? We would love to say that we're perfect uh, friends and perfect fathers and mothers and all these things, yet none of us are. Uh, we, we would love to be, but the idea here of perfection and this love is that one of completeness. It is that one of entirety. It is one that is maturing and, and continuously growing in its depth and its height and its breadth. And so our love made perfect, we find, is that our faith is being completed. It is being worked out. We should be continuously growing in faith. And according to the Bible, what we sort of talk about is one day it will be fully and finally completed. One day, I'm not going to need faith anymore. The moment I see my Savior, I won't need faith anymore. Faith becomes sight. Right now, we must uh, walk by faith and not by sight. And as he talks about here, sort of a, a little illustration for us, is he says, you've seen your brother and yet you can't love him. How can you love God whom you have not seen, right? We have faith in the Lord who we have not seen. We say that we love the Lord who we have not seen. And that one day we will see him and no longer will we uh, have our our faith will be completed. And one day it will be fully completed. And I have there in parentheses in the day of judgment. This is where after this and we get to step into um, what what uh, Dr. Bowman used to call uh, eternity, the big E. 
that when we get to chapters 21 and chapter 22 of Revelation, we walk into new heavens and new earth, after all the judgment, after all these things, after all these sorrows, after all this waiting, and finally, it's complete. That's what we're longing and looking forward to. It reminds us of well that God's work is continually doing a work in us, and His work through the Spirit is to make us Christ-like. There's not a single saved person that should not be growing or maturing. As a matter of fact, as John has talked about in this whole letter so far, is that growing in maturity, growing in love, growing in knowledge, those are marks of salvation. Those are assurances of salvation. The soul that is not growing or is not desiring to grow, that soul is in grave danger of truly not knowing the Lord. They might know church, and there's plenty of people who rise up in church hierarchy. There have been plenty of lost deacons and lost pastors, right? I've heard many stories of pastors being saved, Bible college students being saved, deacons being saved. And praise God that they got saved finally. But we think about this. You can mature, if you will, or grow in the church work without ever actually knowing the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be. And this letter, John has been continuously going over and over and over again showing how we can, know, uh, we can know that we know, meaning that we can have this assurance of the Lord, but as well then showing us the proofs of this assurance. And one of the great themes that he's been dealing with all throughout, and especially in this chapter, is this idea of love. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. right? Our love is being perfected. It is being completed. It is being matured. And so therefore we can know, and it's being completed and being matured each day that we yield to the Spirit that He's given to us, right? As He's already told us in this passage, um, that has given us His Spirit in verse 13. Hereby we know that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. Now, every saved soul has the same Holy Spirit, right? The, the pastor doesn't have a bigger Holy Spirit than you do, right? That's not the case. And, and the, the person who just got saved doesn't have a smaller Holy Spirit than you do. We have the same Holy Spirit, the same third person of the Trinity that indwells every believer. Praise the Lord for that. That's a gift. It is a gift to us. But what we find, though, is that the difference in mature Christians or immature Christians or growing Christians and stagnating Christians is yielding to the Spirit. This is really the key. It's so elementary, yet it's so complex and so deep because it is so simple, yet it is the hardest thing to do. It is the most simple thing in our minds to understand that we must yield to God and to His Word. We must yield to His Spirit. We must obey the Spirit of God. Yet, what do we do? We struggle, we fight, we get in the flesh because we, we feed the flesh. The flesh feels good for a season. We like our sin. We like the world too much. We're far too anchored to it. And when the Spirit comes calling, we don't often yield. And the reason why we're not maturing is because we're not yielding. And now as John is going to talk about the reason why we're not so loving is because we are also not yielding. Now, here's what he gets into, though. He says, our love is made perfect that we may have boldness, right? This is uh, the, the, the word that here is, is also sort of understood in, in order that, right? That we may um, have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, this sounds kind of odd to think that on judgment day that you and I can be bold, right? When we think of boldness, we think of bold flavored checks mix. We think of bold speakers. We think of bold font and print. We think of things that are big and in your face, right? And so when we think about the judgment seat, we don't think about us being able to be bold, right? The idea of bold here 
is less of our American or English understanding of bold, meaning something that is big and in your face, and more something about that is, that is confident. And not an arrogance, but a confidence, and there is a great difference. We can tell people who are arrogant or prideful, right? We can look at most of your star athletes and things, and we can see there's some who are confident in their abilities, and there's others who are arrogant in their abilities, right? And it's a very fine line, is it not? But here, confidence, we should have confidence spiritually. And this is why John has been writing this. In his day, their, their confidence and assurance of salvation had been shaken. The Gnostics had, had taken over much of the, the thought of the world. Many of the Antichrists had left the church because they would not conform to Christ and to His Word. And, and so this is a, a grave danger for him in his day, but as well for ours. One of the biggest issues that I, I see as a pastor and that I experience with, with believers is that of assurance, that of confidence in the Lord. If we can have, let me ask you this, all right? Can we have confidence in the Bible? Yes, all right. Let me do that again. Can we have confidence in the Bible? Yes, all right. If we can't, then we can't have confidence of anything, right? And so this is the key. We understand that we can have confidence and trust because of the Word of God. Therefore, what He's getting us to is that when we do stand before the Lord, and, and on that day, we have to understand, we're not going to be uh, facing Him as judge at the great white throne judgment. That is, those who have rejected Him. We get what's called the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat was a place where uh, rewards were given out. Specifically, it was the idea of a, of a judgment seat for athletes, where they would come by, and then they would be crowned with these wreaths and things, much like, I don't know, some sort of fern-like thing. They were woven together. There might be jewels, depending upon the games and, and, and prestige of the awards. But they would be rewarded for what they have done, what they have accomplished. You and I get rewards. And, and so praise the Lord for that, right? Now, granted, the greatest reward that we have is the rewarder of the rewards. We often get so wrapped up on, I want to get this many crowns, or I want to have more crowns than so-and-so, or I want to have all my crowns and then to be able to have the most crowns to, to cast them down in his feet. And boy, doesn't that sound spiritual? I want to have the most crowns in heaven more than anybody else, right? Now, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty prideful of us Christians sometimes. But what is the great reward? It's rather not what is the great reward, but who is the great reward? And that is Jesus. And nevertheless, we can have confidence here is what he's talking about. David Guzik writes, This is when the completeness of love's work in us will be demonstrated. As much as we can know the completeness of God's love now, we will know it all the more in the day of judgment. Now, for those who are going to be at the great white throne judgment, those who will be facing the Lord as sort of judge, jury, and executioner, if you will, it is going to be God, by the way, who is doing the wrath pouring out in hell forever. It's not the devil. As a matter of fact, the devil is being cast into the lake of fire as well. The, the, the devil is not going to be running hell or running the lake of fire. He, he doesn't get that choice. As a matter of fact, he's going to face the same torment that everyone else who has rejected the Lord is going to face. But what we find, though, on that day, when they face that judgment, they will not get to experience his love in that moment. They will experience his wrath, and what they will continue to experience forever and forever is his wrath. But for you and I, when we get to our judgment seat, there that Bema seat, what do we get to see in its completeness? Love. And it sounds strange to think that there we are at a judgment seat, and yet we're going to be receiving love, but we will receive love because that is who God is. And for you and I, we get to experience that because we will be in the presence of love himself. 
We will get to be in the presence of the one who loved us and died for us and continue to love us even though we were saved and still chose our sin at times. We will experience more love than what we could ever imagine or give or fathom on this earth. You can think about the, maybe the moment that you might have had in your life where you felt the most love and peace imaginable, right? And, and man, what a great memory that might be. But it's nothing compared to a moment before the Lord. And so we can have confidence, not because that I've earned His love or that I did anything to make Him love me more, because I've done nothing in my life to make Him love me more or to make Him love me less. He has loved me the same. He has loved me with a perfect love, a complete love, if you will. But because of who He is and what He has done, I can have confidence before Him knowing that that day will be sweet. As another commentator writes, what the author means by having confidence on the day of judgment can be deduced from a parallel passage found in 228. Uh, let's turn there for just a moment, right? The author quotes there. Let's, let's turn to 228 here of uh, 1 John. He says, And now, little children, abide in Him that, or in order that, when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. That's a great response to the Lord's coming, is it not? To be confident. Uh, to be joyful, uh, to be uh, full of peace and assurance, to have blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, to, to have those things. And so Jesus is coming, and we are going to stand before Him, but we can have this same confidence because of who He is. Now, let's get back here. The author tells us and says, Here, confidence is equated with being unashamed before Christ at His coming. And in the context of 2.28, that confidence arises out of believers' obedience to God's Word. The confidence to which the author refers here in 4.17-18 then can be understood in terms of believers being unashamed before the Son of God on the Day of Judgment. This confidence, as we have seen, arises within the love relationship believers have with God. So what it comes down to is obedience. The, that when we obey, we have confidence, isn't it? When we're close to the Lord, we have confidence, don't we? When we're far from the Lord, when I'm, when I'm in my flesh, right? When Pastor Joe is in his flesh, which hardly ever happens, right? Yeah, right? I would love to think so, but no, it happens far too often. And when I'm in my flesh, you know what I feel in my relationship towards God? He's over there, and I'm way plumb over here. I'm going, where are you? Where are you? He ain't moved, but I have. Right, And so He's remained the same, but because of my sin, because of my feeding of the flesh, and my feelings in the flesh, and my trusting in the flesh, I've now become distant, separated in fellowship with Him, and therefore I'm not nearly as confident. Not just confident in my life, but confident in the words that I say. We can often lose confidence in the things of God, not because God has changed or because God becomes unjust, but because we have become fleshly or have uh, left that sort of fellowship and, and, and many times it happens unknowingly it's like we wake up and we just go it just doesn't something's out of whack something's not quite right here he's dealing with this the greatest way to have confidence in the lord is to be obedient to the lord and so here when we're talking about we may have boldness in the day of judgment knowing this that while I no longer have to, to give an answer for, for every little sin that I've ever committed, I will have to give answer for 
my obedience. Right? We talk about this. Our, our sort of um, reasons behind and the whys behind we did what we did. Our, our motivations, our hearts, right? It can either be wood, hay, or stubble, or it can be uh, precious jewels. Here, I can have confidence when I'm obeying Him. That when I do stand before Him, there will be no, nothing to be ashamed of, but there will be um, such reward in goodness. The Bible also talks that we can have boldness and that we may boldly go now to the throne. And why is that? Because of Christ's obedience, and now by our faithful obedience to Him, we may now enter through Christ and that we may now go and we may speak boldly and have confidence that the Lord hears us. We may have confidence when we know that we're saved and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Sorensen writes, the word translated as boldness, uh, parousia, also has the sense of confidence, which is the likely thought in this context. The overarching thought is that to this end, our love ought to develop so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. The only day of judgment believers will face is the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, as we develop God's love in our day-to-day living, we can face the Bema with confidence. I often dread the judgment seat. Do you? Perhaps not. Maybe I am the only one. But there are many times where I, I, I wonder, and I know the, the weight of which God has placed upon my life to preach the Word and to teach the Word and, and, and to feed His sheep. And many times I go, oh boy, oh me, oh my. And many times I look at others and I see the, the failures of others and I go, oh boy. And then I go, I don't have to give an answer for them, but I have to give an answer to me, uh, for, uh, for, for me rather. And, and what I've found is that there can still yet be confidence knowing that when I do face Him, that even though I have failed Him a million times, His grace and mercy will still be in much more abundance than my sin. That even yet still that there is obedience that has been given by God's grace through the yielding to His Spirit, that there will be reward. And that the greatest thing is that I won't have to be on the other side of the fence, if you will, and to hear, depart from me. If the only reward that I ever have is, is that of being, to be, being able to be there with the Lord, well, that's good enough, but there is much more to the Christian life, is there not? The issue is, though, we often want the rewards. But what we need more is the rewarder. And we should have a greater desire for the Lord than what He gives we should have a greater desire not just to go, well, maybe if I work and work and work and work and work, I'll have all these rewards in heaven and it'll be so great. Our motivation should be, I just want to obey Jesus. And this is where it gets hard. This is what is the hard thing to do day in and day out. But I can be confident and we can be confident before Christ because we can be confident in Christ. Because I know what Jesus has done, I can rest in that. Because I know that Jesus still yet loves me even though I fail it many times a day. I can trust Him. I can have confidence in Him. And because I know that He is coming again and that I will stand before Him as His own, 
can have confidence in Him. Now this confidence should cause our fear to flee. Because in those moments when I do think about the woe is me and oh me, oh my, I'm going to stand before Him one day, I also think of the same phrase, which is I'm going to stand before Him one day. And that does bring confidence. It does bring about faith. One commentator put it this way, he says, But the God who is love wants His children to have confidence. Look back again to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. He says, it and, and drink it in. Well, let's do that. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We can have complete confidence in Christ, God's Son, because He shed His blood for our forgiveness. We can call God Father and know that we are fully accepted for the sake of His beloved Son. Punishment is quite foreign to someone who is forgiven and loved. Thank the Lord for such a confidence that we can have. Now we also find in verse 17, because as He is, so are we in this world. As Jesus lived and loved Therefore, we must do the same. Now, I will never be able to love like Jesus. I will never be able to pastor like Jesus pastored His people and fed His flock. I will never be able to to live in a perfect way in which Jesus did. But yet, because I'm in Christ and the Spirit now dwells in me, there is a desire to be more Christ-like. And the Spirit is continuously drawing us to Jesus and drawing us to be more obedient to Him so that we would become more like Him. When they were called Christians for the first time, the idea is not that they had some sort of denomination set up and things like that. Rather, it was that they were little Christ, it was the idea. That they walked like Jesus. They talked like Jesus. They spoke like Jesus. They lived as Jesus lived. And they lived even more so as Jesus had commanded them to live. That's what we need today. We don't need to be like this church or that pastor or what so-and-so says. We need to be and to live in the ways in which Jesus has done. Many people wear a little bracelet, and it's still somewhat popular today, that says, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? I I ask that question, and and I always remember that Jesus went in, and He flipped tables, and He drove people out with a whip, and I love that that one, but (laughs) what they're getting at is, what would He do? How would He live? How would He respond? And I think it's somewhat of, a, of an interesting idea because the way in which Jesus responds and lived His life many times does not look like the way I live. And so we should be mirroring who He was and what He has done, how He loved, how He sacrificed, even those and for even those that did not love Him back and would reject Him or would um, deny Him. But because of love, uh, God's love toward us, In the perfecting of this love, we no longer have the need to fear, but rather are driven to love Him and others more. And so in our day-to-day life, we should love more and live more like Jesus. And in doing that, in our obedience, we become more confident in the love that God has for me and that I can have confidence in that day of judgment. (coughs) Now, excuse me, in verse 18 and 19, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because Fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 
So we grow more faithful as we are more faithful, and we grow less fearful as we are more faithful. And in verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. Now, when we look at this, who loves first here? He does. Thank you. All right. God does. That's right. It's there. The Lord loved us long before we knew Him. There was a moment in a time in your life when you were without Christ that you did not love God. It was His love, though, that draws us to Himself. Remember, the Bible still tells us it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. And so we love Him because He first loved us. And the moment that we did get saved, He didn't love us anymore. And when we messed up, He didn't love us any less. He loved us with a complete and a perfect and a godly love that sacrificed for us. One puts it here, God's love was primary. All true love is a response to His initiative. John repeats the truth. He has asserted in verse 10, fear lives within us by nature and needs to be driven out. Agape, God-like love, on the other hand, does not reside in our fallen nature. So I have confidence because of His love and I can then show others love because He loves me. The reason why you can love anybody is because of the love that He has shown and given and demonstrated. And it is God's love that connects us to Him, but it is the love of God that then connects us to other people. Because if God loves us and we've responded to that by repentance and faith and now we're born again into His family, well, now we love Him as well and praise the Lord for that. But because of that love and that connection, now then we should naturally love those who even are our enemies and love those who are brothers and sisters in the faith. And that was a real grave issue of their day. We continue on. In verse 20 and 21, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you do not love God who you have not seen. Have here a love that is spoken but not shown is not love. Love can be said, but true love as well must be shown and demonstrated. You can't really sacrifice and serve but so much with your words, can you? Sacrifice and service goes much more than just saying, I love you, right? And so you can't kind of get out of it today on Mother's Day and say, I love you, and I forgot uh, about Mother's Day. Uh, anyway, the card will be in the mail next week, right? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it takes a little bit of, of sacrifice. We think about the love that God has for us. Is there not sacrifice? And He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Himself. He's given Himself to us. Here, Cruz writes, if people cannot carry out lesser requirement to love their fellow believers whom they have seen, they cannot carry out the greater requirement to love God whom they have not seen. If you want to be able to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want to be able to love your church, you want to be able to love your family, love your community, you want to know how? You ready? Love God. And the more that you love and grow in a love towards God, and by the way, that is not just some sort of emotions towards when you think about, oh, God's so good, God's so good. Yes, He is. But your love towards God is shown in your obedience to Him and your sacrifice and service to Him, not out of obligation, but out of obedience, out of 
uh, a love for Him and what He has done for us. In the same way that we cannot love and hate God at the same time, we cannot love and hate our brothers and sisters in Christ at the same time either. And the idea that John is getting at is that we can't love or say that we love our brother and sister in Christ and hate them and then say that we love God. There are many people, sadly, who have been turned away from church and and in consequence, turned away from the Lord because they have said, well, they say they love God, but I see how they treat so-and-so. Or I've, I know their mouth. Or I know their life. I've watched them live. And if that's loving God, I, I must be doing pretty good on my own. I must not need what they think they have or say they have because they have no real love. Sadly, what we should be known for, which is the love of the brethren and a love of God, a love of people, we're oftentimes least known for. Love is is difficult. No one ever said it was easy. God never said it's easy to love your brother and sister who has gum against you. It's easy to love your brother and sister who has walked away from you. It is easy to love your brother and sister in the faith who has disagreed with you or maybe ridiculed you or or even... uh, stabbed you in the back and twisted the knife and walked back down the church hallway smiling as if nothing happened. And he still says love. Because we cannot hate our brother or sister and say that then we love God. It doesn't go together. It can't go together. Sorensen writes, John thus concludes the dichotomy developed throughout the book regarding hatred versus love. The two are mutually exclusive. To live a life fouled with hatred will prevent the love of God from developing. It's been said here, little side note, either you're growing better or growing bitter. Every believer should be getting older and sweeter and more loving and more kind, not more older and cynical and hard-hearted. We must be careful in these days. He continues and he says, we thus are in peril of loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The overarching principle is to drain out the dirty oil of hatred from our lives and refill the reservoir thereof with love for others. That begins with the Lord Himself and thence to all others around us. We must be emptied of any hate or frustration or anger or bitterness towards other people and we must be filled with a love for God because of God so that then we can pour out love for other people. But you cannot pour out love if you are not filled with love because what you are filled with, that's what's going to be poured out. If you are full of bitterness, what comes out is going to be bitterness. It's going to be anger and malice and frustration and evil. Wicked thoughts and wicked speech. And and you'll be the one that people go, I don't want to go there because of so-and-so. Or I don't want to be a Christian because of so-and-so. Or I don't even want to be around so-and-so. And you might think, well, good. I don't want nobody around me either. Sadly, what you need to be emptied of that and filled of Him. Then see, Thatcher writes, in the context of the Antichrist conflict that they're facing, remember, there's many who he's called Antichrist who have left the faith. He says, the love command means that those who aspire to perfect love must show love toward God by accepting John's true witness about Jesus and stay in good fellowship with other believers who make the same confession. The Antichrists have failed on both counts and therefore have reason to fear God's judgment. <clears throat> I believe that there's many today who absolutely should fear God's judgment. Many people say today, 
Um, only God can judge me, right? And they say it so boastfully. That should make them afraid. That you will stand before God, and if you are standing before God without Christ, you should fear and tremble and bow before Him now and be born again. But if you claim to be saved, and you claim to know Him, and yet you live with such hatred and against those who are to be confessing the same thing that you confess, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you just can't stand them, or yet you talk evil of them, and there's continued division and disorder amongst the brethren. There's danger, and you should fear. Here, Stott writes, and we'll be done. The folly of the liar's position. Remember, he said, if a man say, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. People talk about, we don't want mean-spirited preaching with name-calling. I get it, because I can be a jerk, and I know it. But here John says, clearly, if you say this, but live this, you're a liar. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and God sees and knows your heart. I don't want to be found a liar. I want to live the truth and be of the truth and preach the truth. So the folly of the liar's position is seen not only in its inherent inconsistency, but in the fact that love for God and love for brother from one single command. Jesus himself taught this. It was he who united Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18 and then declared that all the law and the prophets hung upon them. Matthew 22.37-40. We may not separate what Jesus has joined. Besides, if we love God, we shall keep his commands. And His command is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Two things. Christians must be marked by love. Must be known by it. When someone thinks of you, they're going to think about something about you. They might think about the way you look, the way you talk, the things you did, the, the person you are. But I wonder if they think they love the Lord and they love me. Wouldn't that be nice? Not only must Christians be marked by love, but we must be matured by love. The more I understand and grow in a knowledge of the love that God has towards me through Jesus Christ, the more I will be matured, the more I will be more obedient, the more I will be more Christ-like, and therefore the more love I will show to others. Amen? Let us pray. God, we come to you. We thank you for this time. Grateful that we can study the truth of your word, and Lord, while... These things are so yet simple, yet they're so difficult for us, God, to, to grasp and to, to live out. So, Lord, help us to not just be full of, of knowledge of these things in our mind and to, to know it, but, Lord, help us to be not just hearers but doers of the Word, Lord, to live a life of love towards one another and especially towards You. God, I pray that You would fill our hearts now, strengthen us, encourage us, and prepare us for this worship service, Lord, that You would be glorified and honored in all things that we say and do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.